Now let's, uh, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we think it wonderful and marvelous that we people uh, who are ordinary people on planet Earth and in our ordinariness, Lord, are also uniquely uh, different people, but we all share, Lord, the darkness, the sin, the evil, Lord, of this world. Uh, None of us could come before you and say that in ourselves we are a righteous people, Lord, that we have lived the life of perfection that was your plan. But we thank you, Lord, that we do share in the person of Jesus Christ, those of us who have faith in him. We have been united with, him in, uh, united with Christ, and we have, we've been united with him in his death, and united with him in his resurrection to new life. And we praise you for this, Lord. We thank you that our sins, though there are many, have been forgiven. And we thank you, Lord, that... Um, You have granted to us uh, spiritual riches, which, Lord, we have yet not really begun to even taste, uh, uh, Lord, uh, a very slight fraction of them. These spiritual riches, Lord, that will last forever and ever, are abundant. Uh, uh, Lord, all of the great inheritance that is stored up for us in heaven, but also, Lord, that is poured out to us upon earth. Father, we thank you for your... Uh, providential love to us throughout the whole of our lives, providing all that we really needed, uh, Lord, as human beings, but also as your children. Thank you, Lord, that you've provided us with redeeming grace throughout, throughout our lives since we first became Christians. Lord, we've been ransomed from the devil and from sin. We've been healed in our souls. We've been restored to uh, the image of God. We've been forgiven. And, Lord, we praise you for the the peace and the love that does spring from that. Lord, we are conscious, Lord, in this past week, Lord, we haven't always been in your peace and love, Lord. We acknowledge, Lord, there have been times uh, when we've, Lord, sinned, may have walked in the darkness. But we thank you uh, for this wonderful covenant love, Lord, that says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that is our hope and our anchor. Lord, it is, our, uh, Lord, our victory over the world, uh, Lord, which is our faith, the faith you've given us. And, uh, Lord, we pray you increase our faith tonight, increase our joy in the Lord, and increase our love, uh, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and increase our love for one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, could we turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, and uh, that's on page 1027 in the, in the church Bibles. Now, you'll uh, notice that one of the headings in the church Bible uh, from verse uh, just before verse 18, is messengers from John the Baptist. Well, I'm not reading that. Although, actually, it is quite relevant to the passage I am looking at, which is about uh, the the sinful woman who is forgiven. And it's relevant because perhaps, perhaps, that after John's messengers had gone, we're told in verse 24, if you look on verse 24, page 1026, 
When John's message had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. I'm not going to read the whole of that either. (laughs) But as Jesus was speaking to the crowds, he finished up by saying this in verse uh, 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. And he means by that his his, uh, opponents, the Pharisees and the the lawyers. They claimed Jesus was demon-possessed was doing the work of Beelzebul and not God. In fact, they were sinning against the Holy Spirit in doing so. But Jesus uh, says, verse 34, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now the word there, sinner, means prostitutes. We can see that from the context of what happens next, but also... We know from rabbinical writings that this was a word that was used uh, as, I suppose you might call it, even a euphemism. They didn't want to um, say uh, the word prostitute. Actually, we have a similar thing today, don't we? Serve uh, people working in the sex object industry. The people of the world talk about the sex industry as though though that made it kind of okay, uh, rather than the sex object industry, which would obviously offend most women. Um, but uh, they called them sinners. And we see in, the, in this passage I'm going to read next that this particular person that's at the center of this story was indeed a prostitute. Verse 38, yet wisdom is justified by her children, is uh, how Jesus finished that part of the passage. Now let me read the main passage. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And reclining at table meant, of course, that the uh, guests in a dinner party wouldn't uh, sit in nice ornate seats, but would actually be lying on couches uh, rather, like, um, uh, rather like the spokes of a wheel. And uh, the, the heads uh, and uh, upper bodies of the people, uh, men of course, would be... Um, in the center of the wheel, in the hub, if you like, and they would receive their, their, their food and would eat and talk with their heads quite close together uh, so, they could eat, so they could talk. And um, it says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, bought, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet her feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, 
but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting. And, of course, that's normal in the Mediterranean today uh, in Italy, uh, that uh, you give a, a kiss of greeting to, a, to, a, to, a, to everybody that you know, and, but certainly also to an honored guest, kiss on the cheek. Um, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, uh, this passage is, uh, and the sermon I'm giving was planned for last week, but of course I wasn't here last week, and it was cancelled. And Vicky is going to have to forgive me because I've actually <laughs> given two open air uh, sermons recently on this uh, on this text at the Open End Stratford, but I'm going to give the complete version um, of this, which is aimed both at believers and unbelievers uh, tonight. Uh, so there will be some some different stuff in it that, than you've heard Vicky already. Um, so before looking at this, because I want to look at this uh, before we uh, take communion, I would like to pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are confident that the Bible is your word, your communication to us. We also know, Lord, we're confident, Lord, in our own uh, spiritual dullness and and deafness and heaviness and, uh, Lord, our lack lack of alacrity to actually follow your word. We pray, Lord, please remove the dullness, remove the uh, the lack of obedience. Remove, Lord, uh, the, the blindness that we may see uh, the meaning of this for our own lives. And uh, we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will indeed bless us, both here that are in the church and those that are online and those who will listen to a recording. Lord, with uh, Lord, the, the words and the person of Jesus as he is revealed in your word. Uh, Lord, we pray glorify your Son and May you, Lord, be glorified in us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, in this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want you to notice that I've called it the tale of the woman with no name. And uh, Vicky will, uh, if she was listening in the open air, will know that actually uh, it's a pun, if you like, on um, the films of Clint Eastwood. Um, Clint Eastwood's westerns uh, were very uh, popular in the 60s and 70s. Uh, And he did a series with a man with no name who was the central figure. Now, funnily enough, there was great animosity between John Wayne and Clint Eastwood over the man with no name. Uh, The reason was that actually John Wayne's films about the West was all about a sentimental fairy tale about the noble white men who conquered the Red Indians, as they were called in those days, the indigenous population of America, 
and how they conquered all of that horribleness and they were doing wonderful things, living out the all-American dream in the, you know, in the uh, late 18th and early, uh, and, uh, sorry, the, the late 17th and 18th century. Of course, Clint Eastwood tore this myth to pieces in his film. Not that the films are in any way, I personally, admirable. Um, they're violent, sadistic, base, cruel, um, and, and uh, sordid. But what Clint Eastwood was doing with his central hero that appears in a number of these films, a man that had no name, is to tear apart this idea that the Wild West was all about a battle between good and evil. It wasn't. It was just a battle between self-centered men of all, of all colors and all hues. And uh, John Wayne found this outrageous. You know, he, he said, how can you, you know, uh, how could you make this a central character of your film, a man who, who kills people like flies without mercy and gives the impression that the whole of the, whole of the history of, uh, of America during the 18th century in the West was like this. And he couldn't stand Eastwood's films. And even when Clint Eastwood asked him to make a film with him, he refused. Now, I don't want to trivialize or infantilize the Bible, but I want us to notice that this woman is given no name. She's a prostitute, but she's given no name. And uh, we also have an outrage by one particular person, uh, not just at the woman with no name, but actually, of course, the rage is primarily at Jesus Christ, who was prepared to deal with the woman with no name. The outrage and the anger that this Jesus should be prepared to say that, or prepared to allow this woman to enter into a close relationship with her for just a few minutes. And of course, no doubt, the rage got even more bitter and more horrible when uh, Jesus announced that this woman had salvation. Now, firstly, I want to, us to notice that although the, the Bible in, indeed goes along with using the euphemism of sinner for prostitute um, um, for this lady as, uh, and in numerous other cases, in fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus referred to um, prostitutes as prostitutes, using the, the word for prostitutes, in Matthew 21, verse 31, when he said, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Matthew 21, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And in Luke 15, 30, of course, we have a reference in the, in the parable of the prodigal son to uh, the prodigal son wasting his his, his uh, possessions and property on prostitutes. Now, one thing that's interesting from a social point of view is that although prostitution is referred to throughout the Old Testament, it's clear that by the time of um, 100, 200 years before Jesus, there was, there was relatively little prostitution in, um, in Israel. Um, there was still prostitution, no doubt, but actually the return from um, the return from exile led to a kind of a cleanup of the outside of society. We know that synagogues were in every town, and uh, generally speaking, there was a great you know there was a great emphasis on outward righteousness, a bit like Victorian Britain, except that 
Actually, although in Victorian Britain, where they were, uh, they, they put a great emphasis upon outward, uh, outward church going and religiosity in some areas, of course, prostitution was rife in Victorian Britain. But it was the Romans that made prostitution common again. Once the Romans entered into uh, and took over, uh, over Palestine, Israel, the Roman army was barracked in various places. And the Roman army had it as a principle that no Roman soldier could be married and be on active duty. And uh, uh, you only could get married once you'd retired. So in fact, of course, brothels were everywhere. And uh, this was true, it was true in past tragedies in their own life, ended up as prostitutes. Now, here we have a picture of a woman, not given a name, who gate crashes a dinner party. Now, what was she up to? I mean, most of us here know this story really well. But why did a prostitute go to a dinner party in a stranger's house um, to see a preacher? Now, first thing to note is this. Jesus was deemed a rabbi by an awful lot of people. Now, a rabbi was an official Jewish teacher. And an official Jewish teacher would have a role with teaching his disciples and teaching people in general who were prepared to listen to his teaching. The word rabbi is uh, used 16 times in reference to Jesus. Uh, you remember Nicodemus came at night, and he was an old man and a very, uh, a very eminent religious man. He comes at night and says, Rabbi! And, of course, as I said, there are 15 other times he's mentioned. The actual word rabbi, um, used in Aramaic and Hebrew, for, for the, uh, an official religious teacher. But, in fact, Jesus is called teacher on, four, on 47 other occasions and uh, in the New Testament. And in fact, if you look at our passage, you'll see that that's exactly what, that's exactly what Simon calls Jesus. He, uh, and the Greek word is used is didaskalos, which means teacher. But of course, uh, the, the original would have been rabbi. And you'll see that um, when uh, uh, Jesus says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. He answered, say it, rabbi. Okay, so I've established Jesus as a rabbi, and he's a rabbi that's going to a dinner party. Well, it's just dinner, wasn't it? Well, I ask myself a few questions. What evidence do I have that rabbis taught during their dinner parties? I googled it. And this is the answer I got from a rabbi called um, P.E. Pupko. Uh, and he says this, people, and he's talking about, in general, in uh, in in um, Jewish society today, but this also applies to, to 2,000 years ago. People sit down around a table or some other shared space. Jewish tradition recognizes a meal as a time for intimacy, fellowship, and significant conversation. People are fed and nourished, and in this intimate setting, people talk with each other about what matters. That's why rabbis say if people eat together, and Bible talk, Torah talk, is not exchanged. The meal is a waste of time, a vain enterprise. Because eating creates intimacy amongst people, it creates opportunities for encounters of the intellect and the soul, which must be pursued. Now, Jesus, as a rabbi, 
was used to the idea of going to a dinner party, not just to sit and have a, a nice meal, but to actually teach and talk. And also, importantly, the prostitute knew that as well. And here's another back part of social background, both in Greek society and in Roman society. It was very common that when there was a banquet on, with an important person who might be there and might be talking, complete strangers could walk in and actually gather around uh, in, in, in the space, if it was big enough, and listen to what people were talking about. This was actually, if you like, a, a kind of a, a normal liberty that people could take. Most of us would use the word gatecrashing, but actually it was a common practice. Now, why is it, why is it, you know, why is it important? Well, because we see that this woman came along to do something which was not in itself outrageous, to come and listen to a rabbi giving, uh, giving uh, his, uh, his talk while he was uh, or engaging in spiritual conversation. What outraged Simon, who owned the house, was that this was a prostitute. And at some point, he either recognized her or someone whispered in his ear, or maybe he recognized from her clothing that she was a prostitute, for whatever reason. It may have been, actually, that she was so quick to remove um, her headdress and use her hair because uh, decent religious women were not allowed to, uh, to, to actually uh, let people see their hair uh, in public settings. Uh, women, it, this could be a grounds for divorce in, in Jewish society if, uh, if a woman removed the head covering in front of other men. So for whatever, for, for, for whatever reason, it's clear that um, this man was outraged, this woman. So the woman with no name. Now, second thing I uh, want to point out is that this story is not teaching the cliche that's been in literature for the last hundred years or so, in literature and movies, that there are prostitutes with hearts of gold. Now, you know, the, in films and books, you will, you know, read characterizations of women who, for various reasons, have become prostitutes, but essentially are good people. And despite living such a, a messed up, sometimes depraved life, sometimes just a messed up life, she's a loving and kind person and is often depicted as a heroine. But you see, the Bible doesn't get involved in these sentimental lies. Actually, the Old Testament directly deals with this question about uh, um, you know, what, what are people like. And in, you may remember that Solomon, the day after, he had prayed to God, please give me wisdom that I may be able to deal with the problems of this, that I will deal with in government, in law, in relationships. Lord, give me wisdom. And God grants him that prayer. The very first issue that is mentioned is two prostitutes come to see him. And these two prostitutes come uh, to Solomon and they have a, a massive, angry, bitter uh, row going on. You see, one of the prostitutes had a baby. We'll call her prostitute A. Living in the same house was maybe even in the same rooming area, because they often lived in the same room, was another woman who got pregnant at the same time and the babies were born three months apart, I think it was. Um, and unfortunately, prostitute B, the other woman that was living with the first woman I mentioned, her baby not, died during the night because 
this woman rolled over on her and smothered the baby. And of course, it's unfortunate. It's happened so many times down through history that mothers have sometimes, unfortunately, um, killed their own baby. And that's what happened in this case. But this was different because prostitute B, having had the agony and grief of seeing her own child die, decided, no, I'm not, I'm not taking this. And she went and she basically took, while the other mother was sleeping, took the other baby, maybe it was in some kind of cot or some other area, took prostitute A's baby and claimed it was her own and put the, her dead baby in place. And they both went before Solomon, both claiming that the, one, the other was lying. Prostitute A said, she, she took my baby in the night. And then was, oh no, she's lying, she's mad. Now, you probably know what happened next. Solomon used this wisdom that God had given him to say, okay, bring a sword. I'm now going to cut the baby in half, you can each have half. At this, prostitute A, the real mother, said, no, 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 you can't do that. Prostitute B said, go on, do it. And Solomon realized that the real mother above all wanted her baby to live under any circumstances. Even if she lost the baby as, her, as, as the child she'd rear up, at least she knew that this baby would survive. Now, I want us to notice this, that the New Testament, Jesus actually, um, Jesus actually tells us something about this story. You know, he doesn't say it directly, but it gives us a way of understanding this. You see, Solomon's wisdom had not identified a good and wonderful mother. No. Solomon's wisdom has identified the mother, the real mother. Because a normal mother would want her child to live under any circumstances. Now, in God's grace, in his natural grace, the vast majority of mothers in this world would do exactly the same thing. I mean, we call it, you know, natural grace that God has, God has given to mankind. That even in an evil and a bad world, there are certain things that God has allowed to remain in our, in our characters. That means that we're not going to be as depraved and awful as we would be. And that includes mother love. There are exceptions, of course. Depraved and terrible mothers that we hear of in the papers. But the vast majority would never be like that. Now, Jesus recognized this principle when he said, you being evil, give good gifts to your children. Jesus said that it's normal that even evil people will actually look after their children, protect and care for their own children, and even will, will give their lives for their children, even though they're evil, they're sinners. Now, the Bible doesn't sentimentalize the human heart. It's not that this woman had a heart of gold, that saved her baby. She had a heart of coal, just like us. Dark and dirty and, 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 and dusty. Jesus doesn't sentimentalize normal humanity. We are all, by nature, self-centered and proud, and we don't naturally love God. We don't naturally love our enemies. And so, when this woman comes into Jesus' presence, he's not sentimentalizing her when he judges her to have to have salvation. He's not saying, wow, she was really a good person all along. She was a prostitute, but actually had a heart of gold. That's why she loves me. No, that's not what the Bible is saying, as we'll see. But I want to now just turn to the Pharisee. And note that while the Pharisee um, saw, when the Pharisee saw this, he was not only annoyed at, at uh, this woman 
being a prostitute coming into his house and therefore technically making his house an unclean place. But what he couldn't stand was the fact that this uh, fact that Jesus was giving an example of what he'd already been teaching. That prostitutes somehow had, could have a relationship with God, with a prophet, with a rabbi, could, instead of being completely excluded, could be included in the kingdom of God. So Jesus tells him the parable, again, that many of us will know, uh, about um, the, the wages given, uh, uh, um, the, sorry, the debt that is um, owed by somebody. And uh, we can work out what that debt is according to the, you know, the, 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 the amount of money that's paid each day uh, to, a, to a, uh, an ordinary person. And we can work it, work it out in, in, in terms of um, our modern money. So Jesus is talking about a, a moneylender who ha- has two people who owe money. One owes about 600 pounds, 50 days pay, 50 50 denarii, and we can work that out, roughly 600 pounds. And another owed him 6,000 pounds, and uh, 10 times as much. And Jesus asks, um, asks Simon a question. Now, why did Jesus ask him this question? Well, because Jesus could read the thoughts and intentions of Simon's heart. I've already mentioned he... The verse where Simon refers to Jesus as teacher, rabbi. He takes the word on his, I'm listening to you teacher, but actually he had no intention of listening in his heart to him. But Jesus read the thoughts of his mind. And I want us to notice this has a a meaning for every Christian and every non-Christian. Um, at this moment in time, whether you're listening to it live or whether you're listening to it weeks or months later on the internet, the Lord knows everything about you, and including the very thoughts of your mind. He sees into the deepest part of you. And he sees you not just as you are at this moment, but he sees you over the past few weeks, months. He knows everything that's ever, ever you've thought in the past. And the thing is that we need to understand that Um, every one of us, whether we be a prostitute or whether be a religious person, whoever we are, we have an almighty debt that is built up in our lives. How much do we owe God? The answer is vast amount do we owe God in terms of the amount of debt we have. Now, if I can put it like this, um, there are people that pile up debt on credit cards. You know, they're given a certain amount of credit and they spend and spend and spend and spend. They max out and then they perhaps ask for more money and they spend and spend until finally it all, you know, all catches up on them. All their different debts. Now, the Bible tells us that actually we have a kind of spiritual credit card. It's called our soul, actually. It's in our soul anyway. Day by day, we go into debt. That's what Jesus, why Jesus said every day... Ask God, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Why? Why? Well, because you see, basically, money doesn't grow on trees. Um, and in the case of credit cards, we know that. If 
you have a, uh, you know, a, 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 an uncle that is incredibly benevolent and suppose you owed £50,000 in debts and he pays it off. Oh, great. Well, yeah, you're, you've been released from your debts, but your uncle has had to pay your debt. It isn't actually that money's just been created out of nowhere. Someone has had to pay the cost. Now, the problem with many people is that, that we think that, oh yeah, well, I can pay off my debts to God by going to church or to, by worshipping him or being a nice person. But that's not paying the debt. That's what, that's what we owe to God every day anyway, to live a life according to the law of God. How can we pay our debts? The answer is, someone had to pay. Someone has to pay. And, of course, when Jesus tells at the end of this parable that the, uh, the, the, the prostitute, your sins are forgiven. Or, in fact, he, he tells Simon that her sins have been forgiven, and that's why she's loving him. Actually, what Jesus is, is basically saying, her sins are forgiven, but they are at cost. And the cost, of course, is that Jesus Christ suffered and died, became sin on our behalf, so that we might be the righteousness of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, the debt we owe in the ways we break God's law by not loving him, breaking the commands of, uh, of uh, whether it be anger, which breaks the command of murder, Jesus said, whether it be lust, which breaks the command of do not commit adultery, whether it be pride, which breaks the command of only worship God. When you're proud, you're worshipping yourself. We've broken the will of God in so many ways, but Jesus Christ became a curse for us by hanging on the tree, by dying and paying the price for our sins. And it cost him so much. It cost. Now... This, of course, um, we, if we you want to now just look at, um, at what Jesus said in a bit more detail, as we see now this, um, it says in, in uh, verse 46, You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, at first glance, you might think Jesus is saying, because she's loved and, and shown love for me, she's somehow paying off her debt. No, but that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not that her love has caused her debt to be forgiven and Jesus to bear her, the penalty for her sin because she's a loving person. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. In the Greek, it's, it's pretty clear uh, from the tenses that are used. It's because she has been forgiven and knows it that she's loving, that she's loving Christ, that she's worshipping him. Now, we then have this question, how did this woman know that she was forgiven? I mean, if we actually look at the, this enigma actually of, of what was going on between Christ and this woman we, we have the picture of men at the dinner party 
uh, facing one another, not so much in the spokes of a wheel, because it wasn't necessarily a, a circular um, set of tables that were being made, but certainly men um, with couches pointing inward to an inward area where the food was and so on. And the woman was on the outside. She wasn't even looking at Jesus' face and wouldn't have seen his face. What she could do as someone who would be listening to what was going on would actually, she'd be only seeing Jesus' feet and a load of other people's feet and, and, and their robes and so on, but wouldn't actually be facing Jesus. It says actually in the text that she stood behind Jesus at the table. Um, if you want to, to look at uh, verse 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. So how did she know that she was forgiven? Well, the first thing is, why was she weeping? Well, it may have been to begin with, she was weeping because of her sins. It may have been that. Because the word that is used, again in the Greek here, is a word that is used for a wailing. This isn't just a, a, you know, a sentimental crying uh, disappointment. This is a heart-rending cry of, of, of sorrow that is often used for in bereavement or in other cases. Um, but clearly, by the time when, um, after, after Jesus is actually speaking to, to Simon, clearly it's become tears of, of joy. A, a, a deeply emotional state of thanksgiving and love. Now, how does this happen? Well, the first thing I want to notice is this that she would probably, if she was part of that crowd, that's a speculation, but if she was part of that crowd where Jesus said that he was a friend of sinners, of prostitutes, she had decided to test that out. And in coming to, uh, to, to the banquet and then starting to, to weep, she then actually noticed that her... Her crying, which was so profuse, again, the word that is used is like raining. It's like a, a monsoon of tears coming down from her eyes. And she saw that Jesus' feet were dirty. And so she started to wash his feet. And uh, so she, uh, she uh, then used her hair and undid her hair. And as I said, being a prostitute, she was used to actually unveiling in public, and she probably forgot herself, forgot all the propriety, just in such an emotional state. She just used her hair uh, to, to wipe Jesus' feet. Now, she therefore touched Jesus physically. Now, what was Jesus' response? He was someone who could actually read minds. Uh, he didn't, you know, push his feet away and kick her away, which is what Simon would certainly have done. He actually allowed her to do this. She was able to continue touching him. And in doing so, in continuing to do this, she realized that this was an act of friendship. It was an act of, of re receiving um, what was being offered, just like you know, an act of, un, of, of being unfriendly. If someone offers, you know, someone offers you something to eat or drink and you say, no, I don't want it. That's unfriendly, but if someone says, oh, yes, thank you very much, that's a sign of the intimacy of, of fellowship. And Jesus actually responded to this woman with receiving her. Now, this woman, her body was defiled, 
her mind and heart. Her life was defiled, both we might say ceremonially um, from a Jewish point of view, but actually Jesus read her mind. He knew she had a heart of coal. She, wasn't, she, she, she was a sinner, just like everybody else. But Jesus received her. And in practice, the woman has found out that he is a friend of sinners. He's received me. He's accepted me. Now, I, I want us to, to notice this, that in touching Jesus in the first place, she was involved in an act of faith. I mean, it, the bold thing was not actually, you know, coming into a, a stranger's house and attending a rabbi's discussion. Uh, that wasn't the really bold. The bold thing was that she was prepared, firstly, to stand behind Jesus, and then she was prepared to actually get up close and, and wash his feet. Now, this is a picture. I am, I'm sure this is a picture of faith in contact with the living God and with the living Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, you may remember in the, in, the, in the story of the woman who had a hemorrhage, the thing about this woman was that she was so desperate to be healed and cleansed that she wanted to touch, just touch him. And she, and she thought, even if I touch the hem of his robe, power will come forth. And that's exactly what happened. And she was healed. Now here is the marvelous thing. If you aren't a Christian... Yet, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't been forgiven, the Bible says, reach out and touch him, not with your hand, not in some kind of occultish spiritual um, you know, experience where you, you know, go out from your body to touch him in heaven. No, just you as the person that you are, reach out and speak to Jesus and he will interact with you because he's promised to. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He who believes in me will have rivers of living water flowing through him, Jesus said. Those who believe are not condemned, but have passed from death to life. There are so many promises that when the soul calls out to Jesus, cries out to him, please save me, he will save you. Just trust him and do the calling. Now this woman experienced the power of God in her own life. And that's why I think why the tears of the tears of anguish and of guilt turned into tears of love. And I just want to finish on this. And this, uh, I, I think, is very important for us as believers um, to think about. And you'll see the title of my, uh, of my talk was um, The Woman with No Name, Great Sins, Real Faith, Overflowing Love. Now, this woman is remembered, the woman with no name. Her act of love is remembered in just the same way as Mary of Bethany was remembered for, for her, um, her anointing of Jesus. Now, actually, I'm not, I haven't got time to go into the differences between these two stories. Sometimes people try to make out it's the same person in both of these stories, but there are very important differences I haven't got time to go into between these two stories. But Mary obviously was a friend of Jesus and she was able to anoint his head uh, at a meal because uh, she was all part, of the, you know, part of the community of disciples. But this woman could only anoint his, his feet. But Jesus tells us that uh, in his summary of what this woman was like that there's a whole series of things she did which showed her love, showed that she was forgiven and because she was forgiven 
she showed acts of love. And he says again, read it again, verse 44. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my, my feet with ointment. This was an overflowing love. Now, as I've said, it was an overflowing love because God initiated this relationship. It's not that this woman had love for Christ naturally. This was something God had done in her as she'd come, uh, as she'd come by faith. And having come by faith, she received salvation. Look carefully at the order of these things. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith preceded the love. In fact, her faith probably preceded the repentance as well. Her faith in Jesus, in bringing her to to Jesus, knowing that Jesus was the solution to her whole wrecked life. That's why she was there in the first place. She was seeking to hear the teaching of Jesus. She didn't know that it would then uh, go as far as as, uh, the anointing and the the kissing of his feet and and so on. But actually, uh, God initiated this. Now, how did God initiate it? Well, we know he initiated, he, he initiates this through his Holy Spirit, it says in Romans. God has poured out his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Now, Paul uses that, that uh, phrase or that sentence at the end of all of his teaching about justification by faith. Once having come to faith and having received the Holy Spirit, then God's love is poured, poured out into our hearts. It's being shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit which he's given to us. Now, let us as believers understand this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. We know that. Sometimes people who are arguing against um, second blessings, uh, you know, a second baptism of the Spirit or um, uh, some uh, special initiation into a higher Christian life, they will often say, and, and rightly so, by the way, they will say this, the Holy Spirit is the inheritance of every Christian. Everyone who's come to faith in Christ is com- has been made complete in Christ in, and has received the Holy Spirit. You cannot, you cannot be a Christian if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, Paul says. But look, we have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants to cause us to have overflowing love. Not just the occasional time, but actually to have it in our lives. Now, I'm preaching this to me, by the way as well as to you, uh, because I need to have this overflowing love as a regular thing happening in my life. And the Bible tells us that this is meant to be the norm for being a Christian. You see, uh, what this woman experienced, this overflowing love which expressed itself in these things, is meant to be the controlling force in our life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded that one has died for all and therefore all have died. Now what does it mean the love of Christ controls us? It means that his love for us, his love for us, doesn't give us a choice. We are actually ourselves, we're we're carried along by his love which creates love in in our own selves. 
Because he says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, i.e. be full of self-love, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. No longer living for yourself is the opposite of living for Jesus. The person who is living for Jesus is the person that has overflowing love in their heart, expressed in actions. And this is really important because some people can talk about loving the Lord and they're just talking about the feelings of the heart expressed in, in, in worship. Now that is important. It's undeniably important. Worship and praise, overflowing heart, the emotions. But Jesus related that love actually to service. What did, when, when, uh, when Jesus uh, was, after the resurrection, met Peter, he said, He said three times, and Peter didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. Peter, do you love me? And uh, Peter said, yeah, I do. I I love you. And he asked him three times. He wasn't content. Now, when the third time, when it got to the point where where, where Peter said, you know I love you. You know everything about me. Did Jesus say, well, then spend all your life in praise and thanksgiving, and let's hear it from you, brother. No. He didn't say that. He said... If you love me, feed my sheep. Serve me all your life. Now, as I said, I'm not trying to, to in any way to downgrade the such importance of our, our feelings of love for the Lord. This is tremendously important. Peter says that though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. And you're filled with inexpressible joy, glorious joy. And this is part of the Christian life, but it's not the whole of the Christian life. And we see this in Jesus' commendation of this woman. Because we want us, let's just notice this, that that sequence of things um, that is, is talked about is firstly this. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She practically served the Lord Jesus in a way that was actually um, expected by disciples of their rabbis. Again, if you go to rabbinical Judaism, you find that. Rabbis not only had their disciples that actually often stayed with them uh, 24-7 for months on end, sometimes years on end, but actually the, they, had the, they would do mundane um, t- chores for the, uh, for the rabbi, including washing his hands, washing him. And this woman basically showed in, 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 in symbolic form that she was serving. She was, a, she was a, a disciple of Jesus by actually doing what she did. She didn't realize it, I'm sure, at the time, but she did it. She served Jesus in practice. It then says um, that you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now notice the kissing of feet was in a very important symbolic Thing. I mean, today, the only way we use kiss my feet is, a, is as a, an insult. Oh, he kisses people's feet. You know, he's, he, he's, a, he's a puppet. He's, a, he's insincere. He's just always um, smoothing up to people in power and with influence. But no, the kissing of feet, both amongst Jews and uh, uh, the Gentiles, was a symbol of obedience to the king. It was a sign of love, but expressed in, I am obeying you. It was used, of course, when people came uh, for intercessions, for, for, for help, but it was also a sign of uh, obedience of the king. And, of course, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. But finally, she also, of course, 
It says, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Now, what, this is, seems a bit of an anticlimax. So, you know, uh, you put perfume on my feet. Big deal. Well, actually, we know from uh, this description of what she was using, this is extremely expensive. An alabaster jar was a purpose-made expensive jar in itself which contained highly expensive perfume. This woman sacrificed, sacrificed uh, money uh, for Jesus in an act of great love. She not only, she not only showed um, uh, great, uh, great obedience, desire to serve, but was prepared to sacrifice. Now all of these things are involved in a loving relationship between a disciple and their master. And the challenge for me, and for you, is that day by day, through the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit being poured out in our hearts, we can show this to the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that wishes us to be filled with love, overflowing with love for the Lord. And of in overflowing with love for the Lord, of course, we'll overflow with love for his people. May the Lord help us uh, to, uh, uh, to get that. May the Lord help me uh, to actually uh, have that as part of my life in this coming week. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, indeed we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the great rabbi the great teacher. And thank you that when we look into his word, there indeed is so much wisdom in both what he did and what he said. And we thank you, Lord, that the Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, dealing with broken, messed up, depraved, Lord, people that messed up their lives, showed love and kindness. And Lord, as we come to you, Lord, sinners, wretched sinners, just the same as everybody else, just the same as the people described in the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that we may approach you. You hear us. You allow us, Lord, to trust you, to greet you, to serve you, to obey you, and to love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for this. And we pray, Lord, that we may have more, Lord, of this love growing in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And we pray, Lord, that as fruits, they will grow more and more in our lives as we uh, uh, conduct ourselves through this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask uh, Henry to give a few notices before we take uh, the bread and the wine. Thanks.